Hello, church. If you would open to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, right after Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 6 and 7, although we'll be overviewing most of the book this morning. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters could not quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So Lord, would you open up to us through this book of the Bible today, the nature of your love, and Lord, that we would be people and become people who love like you love. And so would you help us with these things? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are week three of this uh, series, this marriage series, and I'm going to keep my word from last week. I said we would not uh, get into anything practical, and uh, we won't today. Um, we've talked about Trinitarian marriage week one. We talked about uh, Christ's war for his bride in Revelation last week, and, and then today we're going to get into Song of Solomon, and, and we will not take the, uh, the popular modern view of Song of Solomon um, we, uh, in that modern view, I suppose, if, if some of you have not heard it, it's that Song of Solomon is only about the marriage relationship. Only uh, about the marriage relationship. I, I do think there's marriage wisdom here. Uh, we'll, we'll see that. Uh, but I don't think ultimately this book is in the Bible to teach us about earthly marriages. In fact, before the 19th century, no one had that view. Uh, it, it was virtually impossible to find anyone with that view. You go to the Reformers and the Puritans, uh, you see every sermon on the Song of Solomon was about Christ and the church, and they got their view from those before them uh, that this is a book about Christ's love for his bride, uh, the church. I first heard this view in college uh, reading um, some old Christians and um, it was the first time I'd ever come across this. And then I began to, uh, early in my Christian life, I was influenced by John Piper and Paul Washer, who also took this uh, perspective. And then I came across the sermons of uh, Charles Spurgeon, and I found, about, I found 63 sermons that he preached on Song of Solomon. And, uh, and then my favorite book, a really good book I'd recommend on Song of Solomon, if anyone wants to study this more, is by Richard Sibbs. Uh, old Puritan, about 500-year-old book called The Love of Christ. And uh, he really just gets into chapter 5 alone and, and preaches about 20 sermons. Um, and so here's, put all my cards on the table, what I believe this book is about. Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for Song of Solomon tells me so. Uh, that's what the book is. I, I truly believe um, and, and I think this is very helpful 
to, to talk about in a marriage series because I don't believe the greatest need in our marriages is to know our, our spouse's love for us or for us to love our spouses. I think the greatest need in marriages is to know Christ's love for us and to grow in our love for Him. But that really is the greatest need in all of our marriages. Uh, and so studying this actually becomes very helpful to our marriages. In fact, I would say the Song of Solomon uh, has been most helpful to me in my marriage and specifically my understanding of how I'm to love my wife because I don't take the modern view that this is only about the earthly marriage relationship. I think that's why it's been so helpful uh, to me. I mentioned last week that actually I think a really, really big problem in marriage and uh, when Christians study marriage is that we make marriage very common. We make it very average. It, it, it's essentially like other relationships in so many ways. And I think even in the church, we have this shallow view of marriage so often because we never really think deeply about what marriage is ultimately about. Uh, many Christians look at Ephesians 5, for example, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit your husbands as unto the Lord. And it just doesn't land with any weight, with any glory, with any transformative power. Why? Because we've spent so little time thinking about Christ's love for His bride. We've spent so little time thinking about uh, the church's reception of that, that love in response to that love. And so, um, I, I believe to the degree in which we think about marriage at the highest levels possible, it rolls over and spills out into our marriages in, in very transformative ways. Um, and so I hope you hear behind Solomon's words to his bride and about his bride, you would hear Christ's words to his bride. I think that's how we're to hear this. Now, I can't just jump in, or it would be unwise to just jump into the text and begin to go, because I know some of you aren't going to hear it that way. You're not going to hear Christ's words. You're going to hear Solomon and Solomon alone. And so I want to give a few arguments um, to try to win over some of you so that we can all hear Christ through this. Uh, I think the first thing that really catches people off guard is the sexual language that's used in the book. And they go, how could what you're saying be true when you look at that element? And I just bring up a few things that have been said. Alistair Roberts, uh, to that objection, said, Song of Solomon, uh, or he was responding to the objection that Song of Solomon is just about, or merely about, uh, sexual relations. And his reply is, there's no such thing as mere sexual relations. And he quotes C.S. Lewis in his book on four loves that he said, in the act of Eros love, we are not merely ourselves. We are also representatives of something greater than ourselves. John Piper, uh, dealing with the same objection, said something very similar. He, he would be asked and was asked by someone, how can Song of Solomon be uh, about a spiritual or eternal marriage when it's so full of earthly human descriptions of sexual intimacy in marriage. And here's what Piper said. Just because our modern 
uh, even Christian culture struggles to view sexual uh, struggles to view marriage and sexuality in marriage as pure doesn't mean Scripture has that problem. Many, he says, are unfit to interpret and understand the book of Song of Solomon because their view of sexuality is, is, uh, is very much like the cultures where you objectify the other person and you use that other person for your own self-gratification. And if you have that view of sexuality, you will pervert the book of Song of Solomon, Piper said. And he took Augustine and others' view and he said, everything physical is ultimately points to what is spiritual. So he said, I'm not, this is Piper's explanation. He said, I'm not just saying that the book of Song of Solomon is allegorical. I'm saying all of life is allegorical in some sense. That everything physical in some way points to what is spiritual and eternal. So it's not just true about marriage. Uh, this, this is, in a real sense, true about everything. And historically, Christians just haven't really blinked an eye at the poetry of this book to point to a deeper spiritual meaning. Um, and I know, I know in a room like this with many men, we, we look at these descriptions of uh, a church full of men and women, and, and we're called a bride, the bride of Christ. Um, and, and, and it sounds feminine. I would say you're going to have to get over that <laughs> because the Bible continually speaks to the church corporately as a bride. Um, and, and you won't just have problems with books like Song of Solomon and the poetry here. You'll have, you'll have problems with First Peter, John's Gospel, First Corinthians, Ephesians, Revelation, many of the major and minor prophets. Because this is how God communicates His covenant love to His people is in marital terms. And so we need to create a category for this. Listen to Isaiah 62.4. You shall be called, my delight is in her. God's speaking to His people. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And the, and the Bible is just filled with that type of marital language with God speaking about His relationship with His people. And so here's what the Puritans would say. They would quote verses like Titus 1, 5, and they would say, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, nothing is pure. Or they would quote 1 Corinthians 2.14, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. That's what Charles Spurgeon was getting at when he said that many struggle to preach this is more than an ancient love song, and they're afraid to preach it because of its highly poetical character. And he, he said, its music is not for unspiritual ears, it is holy ground. Most preachers don't preach it, not because it's complicated or hard to understand, because it is, but because it's so fused with the spirit of love. And the way to open it up its meaning is not merely through knowledge and learning, but through the key of love. And he isn't meaning uh, some sort of mystical, 
allegorical, uh, come up with whatever meaning you want out of these verses, but a very thoughtful, interpretive process. And I want to lay out a few questions for us as an intro into this uh, this morning. Here's the first question we need to ask when coming to, to interpret the book of Song of Solomon. What literary genre is it? So like if you watch a movie later, it might help to know, am I watching an action movie? Is this a documentary? Is this a romance? Is this a Jane Austen period piece? All right, that's going to help how you watch the movie. We do that with books. We do that with movies. When you come to a book of the Bible, you need to ask, what literary genre is this? Am I dealing with history? Is this poetry? Um, Is this a letter? Is this wisdom literature? If it is wisdom literature... What type of wisdom literature? Is it a proverb? Is it a poem? Is it a song? Is it a prayer? So when you read things like uh, his description, your neck is like a tower, your teeth are ivory, eyes are like doves, you're not thrown off by that because you're like, it's poetry. That's a literary genre. I don't take it literally. And uh, and these things make a lot more sense. I always joke... um, uh, Priscilla used to have to correct me, and I, I really uh, I read things quite literally and listen to things quite literally. Uh, if you've been around me much, but early on in our marriage, uh, Priscilla would correct me in the car when a radio uh, a song would come on the radio, and it would say something like, "I, I just want to swim in in your love," or "I want to swim in the eyes of your love," or something like that. And I'm like, "This is this is ridiculous. This makes no sense whatsoever." Um, and she would say, it's it, poetic license, you know, it's, it's a song, John Mark, it's okay. <laughs> and, and, and that's how you, you have to read Song of Solomon this way, or you, you will not understand what it's meaning. This is poetry, and it's a song. Um, and, and look, we do this with other types of literature too. For example, Revelation. Nobody comes to the book of Revelation And when it says that there is a beast coming out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns out of those heads, and on those ten horns, uh, there are ten crowns. Nobody actually thinks, I don't think anybody actually thinks, that there will be a real beast coming out of the sea with ten literal horns on its, uh, ten crowns on its ten horns. We understand symbolism. We understand it's, it's it's, 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 uh, apocalyptic literature. And so, here, here's another thing to understand. When, when we come at Song of Solomon, if it is an allegory, okay, that's the word we need to understand, an allegory, that is an actual thing uh, that the Bible gives us. For example, in Galatians 4, Paul talks about Hagar and Sarah. And he says uh, about the, the covenant with, with, with them that God makes, he says, this should be viewed allegorically. They are two covenants. Paul says that. That's a quote from from Galatians 4. You can read the Bible allegorically. You need to do it correctly. There are ways to do that wrongly. Um, but, But that's the first thing we need to deal with. What literary genre is it? Second question. How did Jesus teach us to read the Old Testament? We, we talk about this all the time as a church. What, why, what is our way to interpret the Old Testament? Jesus says, it's all about me. It's all about me. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. 
history, narrative, law, prophecy, wisdom, literature, poetry. He says it's all about him. Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus says, it's all about me. And we need to bring that interpretive principle to the book of Song of Solomon. You can't read every other book in the Old Testament as ultimately about Christ, but not read Song of Solomon that way. Uh, especially when Jesus explicitly tells us to read Scripture that way. This is why Martin Luther, who was a very careful teacher of the Bible, he's pushing back on, uh, on Rome and on the Catholic Church saying, uh, what you're teaching is impersonal. And, and the Christian God, Yahweh, is a personal God. And what did he give as his basis, his textual basis for that? Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. And there's a lot of redemptive literary connections we could make about Solomon being a king and gardener. Uh, he was like the first Adam who was a gardener king. And Adam failed to protect his bride in that garden and that kingdom. But this Solomon is now pursuing and preparing uh, a kingdom and a garden for his bride. Uh, you could look at the Davidic king connections between Solomon and Christ are both called the son of David. There's a lot of connections where Solomon is a type of Christ. And so that needs to help us as well. Here's the third question. Uh, isn't all marriage ultimately about Christ in the church? All right. If I were to ask, what's the most important New Testament passage on marriage? New Testament passage on marriage. Almost everybody here would say Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is the most important. And if I said, well, why is Ephesians 5 the most important marriage passage in the Bible? We would say because it teaches that marriage is about Christ and the church. And then think about what Paul says in that verse. He says, this mystery of marriage being about Christ in the church, has now been revealed. Meaning, it wasn't as clear earlier, but now it's revealed. How do we not read that back into Song of Solomon? That the mystery of marriage that's now been revealed, that all marriage is about Christ in the church, we take that and bring an understanding of that into Song of Solomon. Here's a fourth question. Did Old Testament inspired authors like Solomon fully understand what they wrote? So someone might object, well, I don't think Solomon actually thought he was writing about Christ in the church. So authorial intent, the author didn't actually think he was doing that. Therefore, he wasn't doing that. That's one of the big arguments. Um, the problem with that argument is First uh, and Second Peter both say that prophets oftentimes didn't fully understand what they were prophesying. So 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring, what person? Or time, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, that is Israel, but you, the church, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things to which angels long to look. 
So the prophets didn't fully understand everything they were saying when they were speaking about Christ. They knew it was something ahead. They knew there was a person they're speaking about. It was some time it was coming. They didn't have all the details yet. And I think that's true of Solomon. I, you know, John Gill pointed out, um, he's an early Reformed Baptist uh, commentator, he pointed out that it was well known in Israel that, uh, that all these passages, take Hosea for example, God is a husband in speaking to Israel as a bride. They had that category. Solomon had that category of Israel, as Israel as a bride and Yahweh as a husband. And so Solomon, I think, heard behind his words, this points to a greater marriage. And then here's the last thing I would say. This is probably the best argument. If you forget everything else, listen to this one. Could Song of Songs, that's what it called in a chapter 1, verse 1, Song of Songs, could it be a love song to one of Solomon's 700 wives? So, Okay, let's be clear here. He stumbles some people up. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 11, it explicitly says that Solomon sinfully took 700 wives. Let's just be clear about that. God was not pleased with this. Uh, God never uh, allowed for that without calling it sin. Um, and it says that, and you can read that later in 1 Kings 11. How could it be that Solomon, the book of Song of Solomon, is a letter or a, a poem, a, a song, written to one of those 700 wives. And that's all it is. One of those sinfully taken 700 wives. How could that be? And, and, and this is where Jonathan Edwards goes, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. Uh, we know that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Many of those songs are actually about the Lord. We know the Bible is full of songs about the Lord. And yet this song, just about earthly marriage, is the greatest song of all songs. Song of songs. Like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Holy of Holies, Song of Songs. Just a song about a man and his wife is the greatest of all songs. I don't think so. Edward says, it's not. It's a divine song about Christ in the church. And I think he's right. So, I want to do this this morning. I want to get into this passage. I want to drop down into it, but I want to overview it uh, in three scenes. I want to kind of look at the, the progression of Christ in the church here in three scenes. Here's the first scene. The bride confesses her love and shame and the presence of the king. She confesses her love and shame in the presence of the king. Now before I read this, uh, let me remind us again, we're, we're dealing with poetic literature here. Alright? Uh, we're used to reading things like Romans or something. Paul writing a letter to the Roman church. He doesn't write in a letter the smell of Rome. The aroma of the streets of Rome, right? This is not how Paul writes a letter to churches. But here, in this description, right off the bat, we're getting textures we're getting uh, smells. We're, we're getting all of these, uh, these sensory images uh, of sounds and tastes. It's, it's, it's giving us a rich sensory character of love. So look at verse 1. Let, me ki uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
For your love is better than wine, and your anointing oils are fragrant, and your name is oil poured out. Therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So she wants to be near to the king. Verse 4 makes that clear. And when she gets near to this king, when, when they're finally in the same room, when she's finally in the king's presence, when she finally puts eyes on him, she stops. Because shame interrupts love. Shame was not in the first marriage between Adam and Eve initially. And it wasn't something that existed in God and Adam and Adam and Eve's relationship with God. It wasn't existent in that relationship. Shame entered after sin because of sin. We know that after sin, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and each other, and God had to pursue them and clothe them. The glory of this king's presence exposes the bride's insecurities and flaws. Look at verse 5. I am very dark, but lovely. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyard. But my own vineyard I have not kept. What is she doing? She's ashamed. She's ashamed to be in His presence. Her skin is a perceived ugliness to her. I mean, in this culture, it is helpful to remember, uh, you don't want tanned skin. Okay, nobody's paying to go to a tanning bed. Nobody's going out to the beach and trying to get a tan. That's not uh, desirable in this ancient culture because it meant you're poor. You're out working in the sun. You're doing manual labor. Wealth and beauty was something for, reserved for those who stayed in the shade and others did their work for them. She's embarrassed that she's dark-skinned. She's embarrassed by this. And her shame is interrupted by, here's the second scene, the king's delight. He has a consistent delight in the bride's beauty, which begins to overcome her apathy. I want us to think about this for a minute. I think this is really the main point. Her, his, he is consistently delighting in her, and that consistent delighting in her beauty begins to not only remove the shame, but remove an apathy from her toward him. Uh, Richard Sibbs gives this five-fold pattern to the book of Song of Solomon, and I'll just read over these five points. Listen to this. This is kind of an overview of the whole book. He says, strong desire of the church for near communion with Christ. That's how it starts. She's saying, kiss me. The decline again in affection for him, which leads to her regaining affectionate love and desire for him, but then quickly losing it again. And the church falls again and again into declining affection where Christ becomes distant, almost unknown, until the church perceives the constant affection for her, in spite of her indifference, in spite of her apathy, in spite of her unkind dealings with him, she clings faster to him than ever before. That's an overview, Sib says, of, of this book. The king is slowly and consistently winning her heart. 
He's overcoming her repeated disinterest and apathy, saying things to her like this in chapter 4, verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love, and there is no flaw in you. He, he looks at her and he actually sees someone beautiful. She doesn't think she is. He sees a pure, spotless bride and says, You were altogether beautiful, my love, and there is no flaw in you. And listen, church, if you're Christ's blood-bought bride, your biggest problem is that you don't believe that that's true about you. You don't believe that Christ really could look at you and say, you're altogether beautiful and there's no flaw in you. We, we so often do not believe this. But think about how Paul speaks to the churches. Jump over to things we're comfortable with like the letters, the epistles. What is Paul con consistently saying to the churches? You once were darkness. You used to be darkness. But now you are light. Now you are holy. Now you are pure. That's who you are now. You are beautiful. You are spotless. That's what Paul's saying to us in what? In light of the gospel. Look, here, here's the reality. Either, you, there's two options here. Either you are darkness, and you are dirty, and you are unpure, and you are unfaithful, or you're altogether beautiful, and spotless, and pure. There is no middle ground with Christ. It is light or darkness. It is pure or unpure. There's no mid-gray areas in how He views us. And a lot of times we, we may even have that category, but we think, okay, on my good days when I'm really obedient to the Lord, then I kind of move into this light and purity category. And on my bad days, I'm over here in this darkness. He, isn't, he doesn't want me anymore category. Is that truly what we believe about the gospel? We are judicially and legally pure and righteous before Him, or we're condemned? He sees her as flawless. There's two problems in, in, uh, in maintaining that belief in how he views us. I want to identify these. Uh, chapter 2, he, he talks about the first one, verse 14. The first one is a little, what we'll call little foxes. He says, oh my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the crannies of the cleft, in, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. It's almost like he's calling out, pray to me, seek me, draw near to me. But then he says this in verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. It's not wolves. It's not demonic forces that are threatening to hinder their love. He calls it little foxes. And this is very important because in many marriages, it's not the big dangers, but the little seemingly unharmful 
foxes. The, the seemingly harmless little distractions to the vineyard, things like a phone, hobbies, excessive work, things that may not be bad, but they could spoil the vineyard and often do. That's how fruitful would our vineyards be if we would learn to get rid of the little foxes? How much more joy in our relationship with Christ if we would get rid of the little foxes? How much, how many good marriages in this room could be great marriages if you just got the little foxes out of the way? That the slow and, and subtle killer in many Christian marriages is the little foxes. Not bad things, not things that you kill and destroy. He doesn't say kill the foxes. Notice. What does he say? Catch them. Catch the fox. As in, catch it, lock it up, control it. Control the phone. Control the kids. Control the, 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 the work schedule. Get control of the little fox for the sake of your vineyard. It could destroy your vineyard over time because you don't think it's dangerous. He says, catch the little foxes. Now here's the second thing. We call it spiritual laziness. Chapter 5, verse 2. I slept. I take this spiritually. It's the apathetic laziness or indifference to the moving of the Spirit or to the Word of God. This sleepy bride says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. So the king's at the door knocking. Like, uh, what is that verse in Revelation 3.20? Christ says to His bride, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with Me. Remember that verse? The verse that many evangelists twist and turn every direction, but the actual meaning of the verse you know, they'll stand and, and say to a room of lost people, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. If you just come down and pray this prayer, He'll come into your heart and you'll go to heaven. And what does the verse actually mean in Revelation? It's talking about Christ's bride. It's talking about the one who actually knows Him can identify the King's knocking. He's at the door. Open the door. Open your heart fully to Christ, the King that you know and love. Verse 2, open to me, my sister, my love. He says, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. So what does she do? She hears the king knocking. She hears him knocking. He's calling. He's saying, you're beautiful. I love you. I want to spend time with you. And she's too spiritually lazy to get up and open the door. Uh, I heard an entre entrepreneur say once uh, that laziness is not good for anything except one thing. He said the only thing laziness is good for is it shows us what we're not really passionate about. So like growing up, I did not get excited to go to school because I didn't like school. I was happy to stay in bed and sleep. But if I had a weekend and I got to go do something really fun, I was up and ready. Right? I wasn't lazy anymore. Whenever I had something I was passionate about, 
Why is this bride disinterested in opening the door to Christ? Could it be that Christ is more interested in her than she is in Him? Look, I'm, I am convinced. The reason why you don't read your Bible every morning and pray and spend time with Christ isn't lack of discipline. It's that you don't desire Christ as much as you should. But look at this. He's knocking. He desires her. The problem isn't on His end. It's on our end. She's spiritually lazy. How many times does Christ knock at the door of our heart, come away with me, put away that filth, put away that thing. Be with me. I will satisfy you. I am enough for you. And we ignore, keep scrolling, keep watching, keep doing whatever, ignoring. And He's calling. And how does she respond? Verse 3, she says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I spoil them? What's she doing? She's making excuses. I can't get up. I mean, I'm already in bed. I already took a shower. I'm already clean. I can't get dirty again to get up and open the door. Verse 4, My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. This is happens. We hear a sermon. We read a verse. We begin to have some renewed interest in Christ. But we don't draw near. We say, later I'll do it. I'll get up later. He'll still be there knocking later. Will He? How many times have we seen that not be the case? You ignore some inclination to go pray. To go be with the church. And the next week it doesn't show up. That desire was gone. Verse 5, I rose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolts. I opened to my beloved, I put my hand, uh, put, put my beloved, my hand to the door, but he was gone. My soul failed me. When he spoke, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. How offensive to this king. He's putting myrrh on the door handle. He's, he's pursuing her all of his heart. He loves her. And she just doesn't have time making excuses. You would think he'd be enraged. How dare you? I'm the king. You were nothing before I made you my prince. My princess. But he has compassion on her. That's why there's myrrh on the door handle. I know that doesn't make sense to us. But it would be comparable to like leaving some flowers in a card. You know, you didn't come to the door, but here's some flowers in a card. Because I know, you know, you didn't get up. But whenever you do get up, you'll see that I was thinking about you. That was what they did in that day. They would put myrrh on the, on the door handle. It was a, a reminder whenever the person came, they were here. They were thinking about me. And he does that for her. She so badly needs to be with him. When she's not with him, it goes bad. Listen to verse 7. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised and they took away my veil. Oh, how many times we complain. I'm just getting assaulted by the enemy. Temptations. Why? Why is, she, why, is, why is she being so messed with? Because she's not with the king. 
Had she have been with the king, they wouldn't have been able to lay a finger on her. He, he calls her again. Verse, uh, go to chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to how he speaks to her. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Ammon, from the peak of Sinar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountain of leopards. He says, come out of these very dangerous places. Sinar and Hermon uh, were, uh, was a mountain range in the Middle East. There's two different names for the same mountain range depending on uh, what angle you're looking at it. 9,000 foot. And you can see it from about 60 miles away. It's a snow-capped mountain. And so from the, that snow, uh, rivers come out and water and it's very, it, it makes the land very fertile. Uh, and so many uh, worship there. Pagan deities. Um, fertility gods. And so the king is saying, come away from these pagan places of worship. Come away from these dangerous places. Lebanon. He says, come away from that place. That's a place you could find anything. Any earthly pleasure a girl could want could be found there. Any fragrance or mineral or spice or luxurious food, everything. And he's saying, come away with me. Not so that you can't have pleasure anymore, so that nothing good you can experience. Come away with me because I have something better for you. He calls her away from what is dangerous for her soul, what is momentarily pleasurable, but not eternally enjoyable. Guys, what, what if that's really how Christ thinks about you? Verse 9, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. What if when you pray, He actually likes it? He actually delights to hear your voice. She sees and senses a need for renewed love for Him. I believe there's actually a prayer for revival. The Spirit blowing over the church in verse 16. Awake! O north wind and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come into his garden. Eat of its choicest fruit. This is how Richard Sibbs took it. He interpreted it. The church is aware of some deadness in it and the need for the Spirit to blow a wind to awaken and quicken desires. So the bride asks for the Spirit to come to stir the desires and increase her for further faithfulness and fruitfulness. And that leads to a third and final scene, which I'll just look at quickly. Chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. It, it, it flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And the book presses on and it actually ends with the two lovers married, but not together. And this, isn't, this is actually really important how this book ends. She's longing for him, but they're still separated. Look at verse 13. Let me hear. He says this to her. Let me hear your voice. I think prayer. Call upon me. 
Verse 14, the bride says, make haste, my beloved. So he's saying, I want to hear you. And she's saying, come, make haste, return. And the book ends with them longing for each other, but not yet fully united. It doesn't end with them holding hands and riding off into the sunset and happily ever after type marriage. They're married, they love each other, but they're not yet with each other. They're still longing to be with each other. Can you think of any other book in the Bible that ends with a bride and a groom longing to be together, but not yet fully together? Maybe the book of Revelation, chapter 22. The very last page of the Bible ends with the, with the church and Christ longing for each other, not yet together, but saying, come, make haste. Guys, I think, I think that uh, the Christian life is us struggling to not lose our first love. And that's what marriage is too. Struggling to not lose our first love. Resisting every temptation to be apathetic in our marriage. I think that when we come to a book of the Bible to interpret it, one of the things that I've learned, and there's so many, we could call them principles of interpretation, two that I think are really, really important that don't often get said is, does it exalt Christ? Does the view that I take of a book of the Bible exalt Christ? And second, does it conform me to the image of Christ? Does it help me become more like Him? And when we look at this, it not only exalts Christ, it also helps us to become more like Him, especially in our marriages. Think about the, the essence of marriage here. Husbands pursuing their bride, fighting to overcome her apathy and win her heart with grace. With grace. Husbands get discouraged so often. My wife doesn't care about me. She doesn't respect me. She isn't interested in me. So many husbands, they may not even say that, but they may think it. My wife's disinterested. She's apathetic. Well, what is that? how does that affect you, sir? What is it, what is it, how does that affect your role? You're like Christ. You pursue her in her apathy and you win her heart with your grace. It doesn't change one bit of what you're called to do. A wife is to respect and honor and receive from her husband any pursuit, a glance from his eyes, one moment of eye contact, that's a win. One moment that he turns to her, she receives it. She resists the urge to be indifferent, to be apathetic toward his advances. She receives the pursuit of the groom and fights any urge at laziness or apathy toward her her groom, she opens her heart to Him. Guys, if our marriages don't reflect this divine marriage, what are they? What are they? This is the purpose of marriage. Our our marriage isn't working just because um, we don't argue a lot or we stay faithful. Our marriage is working if we're intentionally striving for this type of other-oriented passion and honor and affection. 
and, 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 and we're going to press on in, in the coming weeks into the, the role distinctions of husband and wife, Christ and the church. But we've got to see underneath all of those role distinctions, there's this passion. There's this resistance to apathy and indifference. There's this love that permeates all of it that's evident in Christ's relationship with the church. Amen? We need the Lord to help us with these things. As we turn to uh, the table, um, I hope just thinking this morning on Christ's love for us would help us to rejoice at this table, uh, to, to see this as uh, proclaiming the kingdom until He comes. This is a preparatory meal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, so if you have received Christ by faith, if you're baptized, please join us uh, at the table this morning. Uh, if you'll be refraining, if you're not baptized or a believer and you'll be refraining, you can find in your bulletin some really meaningful prayers. I'd encourage you to read over those. Let's take some time and pray. Uh, Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to win a bride, to rescue a bride. You say that you've, Your Son has purchased her with His blood. The endowment. Lord, we thank You that although we were darkness, You have made us light. Although we were unholy, You have made us holy. Although we were not attractive, You have made us beautiful. And Lord, we pray that You would continue by Your grace to overcome our apathy, to overcome our laziness and distractedness, and that You would continue to win our hearts and gain our affection and our worship. Lord, we pray at the table, Lord, You would solidify again Your covenant faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.